So I'm just going to do a little recap, very short one for those who haven't been with us. Uh, we have been kind of working our way through the book of Mark. We find ourselves in Mark chapter 7 today. Um, it's, it's kind of what we do as a church because we have, we have several rotating speakers. It's, it's kind of easier to do that. Plus, it allows us to not just pick and choose verses that will just verify what we believe. Um, but rather, it makes us face things in the text that we might normally would rather skip. Like today, we're going to talk about the law. Nobody likes to talk about the law, right? I mean, that's supposed to be gone, but that's what today's about. And so we're going to talk about that. Um, I, I was joking. Sarah and I had dinner with Austin and Lilybeth uh, a couple couple nights ago, and I just said what I was going to do today to make it really short is I was just going to get up here and say, listen to Austin's message from last week. Let's pray. Um, I'm not usually one who even says go back and listen to, but if you weren't here last week, uh, and, and here's why, and this is why I'm saying that, not, not necessarily to lift him up, um, but, but uh, to, because nobody needs to do that, um, but, but here's the deal. What he taught on last week, okay, what the message was about last week, I think more than, more than uh, about any other subject you can come up with was probably the most countercultural counter message uh, for the Western society, okay? And I think it is a deep challenge that church needs to embrace because what we have done slowly is embrace, we've embraced modernity to the, to, to the level that our lives um, seem to get their value from the same weight and busyness that the world does. And last week's message was such a, such a challenge to that. In fact, what I think you'll see, if you go back and listen to last week's message, I promise I'll quit and I won't embarrass you anymore. Um, if you go back, it will create a lens, almost, as you read the rest of Mark, that you can look at people like the Pharisees or the disciples when they don't get something and you think, yes, that's, that's why they didn't get it. It became such routine and so busy that they never reflected on it anymore because they thought they had it and they stort, distorted everything. I think you see that a little bit this week. We see that a whole lot in, in the passage we're going to talk about next week. But, but anyway, I'll quit talking and we'll get to this passage. So here we go. Uh, chapter 7, verse 1. Now the Pharisees and some of the experts in the law who came from Jerusalem gathered around him, gathered around Jesus. And they saw that some of Jesus' disciples ate their bread with unclean hands, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they perform a ritual washing, holding fast to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. They hold fast to many other traditions like the washing of cups, of pots, of kettles, and dining couches. Now... Here's kind of what's going on. Let's just stop there a little bit. Let's kind of set the scene, give the backdrop to what, what, is, what is happening. Because we're, we're discussing uh, the law, but not so much the law at this point, as much as uh, some, if you will, some amendments made to the law. Okay? Some, some add-ons. Now, here, here's the way this, this whole thing kind of worked. Back in, I think it was in Leviticus, when this whole scenario was, was set up, um, it was first given to the priests. The priest had to be what they call ritually or ceremonial, ceremonially, however you say that, I'll say, I'll stick with ritually, ritually clean before they entered the temple or when they were interacting with God's people. This involved a lot of washing. It was very, it was, you know, a lot of good hygiene. I would have liked that, I think. Um, but they had to stay, they had to stay extremely clean. Well, so as time kind of progressed, what, what the, the priests and some of the lawmakers thought, well, if this is good for the priests... It's probably good for everybody. 
And so they started kind of not really forcing it, if you will, but they started creating these what they call the traditions of of the elders. These things were basically, you might have heard of it as the oral law. These were things that were passed down through generations um, to kind of help people fulfill the law. Okay, And what I mean by that is when we look at the law, it kind of seems archaic. It seems kind of hardcore. It's like, I could never do that. But really, to a, to a society from, from that time, that law, the law of God, seemed very open-ended, if you will. Kind of like uh, honor your father and mother. Well, what is that? How do you honor your father and mother? And what does that mean? And that like, looks different for him than it does for her. And I, I don't know how to do that. And so, so the Jews, being n- newly coming out of Egypt, wanting to be, uh, or out of the wilderness, wanting to be God's image bearers to the earth, really had a desire to honor, fulfill, and live by this law. The problem is, like a lot of us, we, if something's left open, open-ended and we want to do it, we want to make sure we're doing it right. Okay? So then the, the leaders and the elders of the law, wanting to help the people live according to the law, okay, they kind of came up with these traditions. And these traditions um, were never supposed to be law. They were never supposed to be elevated to the position. But they were supposed to just help people live according to this law that God had, God had given them. Now, what, what we see that kind of... Uh, happened through time is that the the law kind of became an end to itself, okay? The law was never supposed to be just something that created law abiders. It wasn't like, I honored my mother and father, therefore I've done the law. But the law actually, unlike our laws today, was dynamic. It was not static. It had something it was trying to accomplish. It had something it was trying to do to bring the people towards. So what would happen is they came up with these laws about entering, entering the temple. And you could not enter it in an unclean manner. Meaning, they had some crazy stuff like you couldn't touch anything with mildew. Okay, that you're considered unclean. Uh, if you touch somebody or touch something that somebody with an infectious skin disease had touched, you were unclean. If you touched a dirty keyboard or if you touched, not, not really, but if you touched uh, a Gentile or something that a Gentile had touched or you'd gone to the marketplace and you touched something that a dead animal or blood from a dead animal had touched, you were considered unclean. And so before they would go into the temple, they would have to purify themselves. Now, remember when I said the law never was supposed to be an end to itself. Okay. The law was to be an aid now, the truth is, we don't, we don't abide by some of these rituals, but we get the whole something being an aid for us. Like, like take fasting. That's something we don't talk about a lot today, but it was something that was very important to the Jews and to the early church and probably should be important to us. But, but what happens with fasting is God doesn't look down on his people who are praying and say, oh, that dude is starved for like three days. I love him better, right? Fasting doesn't earn God's love to us, but what happens, what fasting is, is an aid to help us develop our hunger for God. So when we go through those times of hunger, instead of pointing it towards something we can control like food, we point it towards God through prayer. Like an, another one of those today would be, uh, would be kneeling. Okay? Kneeling is a very uncomfortable thing. It looks odd. It looks kind of awkward, especially if you've ever seen somebody do it and you're not the one doing it. Um, but what kneeling is, again, God doesn't look down and be like, oh, he did it. He, he kneeled. And that's awesome. Um, rather, what kneeling is, is really more about us. It's an aid to help us develop our humility towards God. To say, this is what you deserve. You deserve for me to come lowly before you because you're worthy of that. 
Okay, some of you might have come in today and you've seen people raising hands and you've never raised hands and you thought, well, what's, what's that about? Are they asking a question? I don't, I don't know what's going on. And, and all that is, all that is, is, is an aid to remind people, to make people conscious that to really be a worshiper of God is to say, God, I surrender. It's all yours. It's all yours. And those aids work best when we really don't feel it emotionally. Right? We kind of force ourselves to follow these aids to remind us, to center us, to bring us back to the point that we are reminded. So one more, one more example is uh, you've probably heard through, through Christian history of icons. Protestants have done a really bad job of butchering the history of what icons were used for. But we have to remember a, a literary culture, a culture that has been reading, has been around for a very short time. Right before before people read, they would they would uh, tell stories. They would look at pictures to kind of remind them of something. And so, in the early church, they started using before that came in worship issue. They started using icons, okay, whether it's statues or whether it's pictures, not to worship themselves, but maybe to uh, to like kind of Austin talked about a little bit last week to to bring their mind, their consciousness back into focus about a specific attribute of God. And that's all they were used for. They were an aid to help people do what it is God is asking them to do. I have, uh, I've, I have an icon in my old, uh, my old office. I hung it right above the door. It's, a, it's, a, it's an icon of the Trinity that I bought at an Orthodox church in, in Russia. And I don't have it there because I need to be reminded that maybe the Trinity might look like this. I don't pray to it. I don't do anything like that. But what I do is sometimes when I get so consumed with me... And I glance up and I catch a picture of that. You know what it reminds me of? That God is not a God who is consumed with him. He's a communal God. He's a God who loves. He's a God who spends time. He's a God that, that enjoys relationship. And then as I go out and I get a glimpse of it, it's kind of like I remember that God is saying, and I'm calling you out as you leave your office to go do that. So that's, that's all these laws were. They were never meant to be an into them Selves. They were just meant to be an aid pointing them towards something that would one day accomplish internally what they could only accomplish uh, externally. Are you with me? Okay. Pick up verse 5. The Pharisees and the experts in the law asked him, Why do your disciples not live according to the traditions of the elders, but eat with unwashed hands? And he said to them, Isaiah prophesied correctly about you hypocrites. As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. They worship me in vain, teaching as doctrine the commandments of God. Having no regard for the command of God, you hold fast to human tradition. He also said to them, you neatly reject the commandment of God in order to set up your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever insults his father or mother must be put to death. But you say that if anyone tells his father or mother, whatever help you would have received from me is Corbin, that is, a gift for God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother. Thus you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down and you do many things like this. Real quick, and we'll go on. So what he's talking about specifically, um, right? One of, the, one of the commandments, one of the top ten was uh, honor your father and mother. Okay? The other thing God wanted us to do is commit everything in life to him. Those are two, two things. They were never supposed to oppose each other. Okay? 
But remember, they have these, the law, which, which are these aids pointing towards something else. And then they have these traditions to help people follow the law. And as time went on, what, what happened was, I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself. What happened was they began to elevate these traditions to, to the point of law. To the point they actually broke the law by keeping the traditions. They broke the very thing the aides were supposed to help them do. And so what they started giving people permission to do is, hey, we know you only have this little bit of inheritance or this little 501, what, I mean, this, this 409 or five, whatever those retirement things are called. You, you have, obviously I don't have one. Um, you, you have one of those, right? You have one of those and mom and dad is sick. And, and according to the law, you should take care of them. But let's use another law to allow you to be selfish. And so we're going to just say you're giving this to God. Okay, basically they, they, they created like we do in our laws today, they, they created loopholes like we uh, it is actually a law in the United States that we are not allowed to uh, to trade goods with any country that practices human slavery. But we do it all the time. Why? Because we have found ways to create loopholes because we prioritize profit more than people. That allows us to, can you do that? This is all that Jesus is saying. You have used your very traditions to create loopholes to allow you to disobey the law that you were actually supposed to obey in the first place. Okay, so let's keep going. Then he called the crowd again and said to them, listen to me, everyone, and understand. There is nothing outside of a person that can defile him by going into him. Rather, it is what comes out of the person that defiles him. Now, so here, Jesus is... uh, Jesus is doing a couple things. The first thing he's, he's doing is he is actually now, in kind of ironic twist, he has, he has brought to memory a statement from Isaiah. Okay? So ironically, what he's doing, he's using them accusing him because the true accusation is not against his disciples. It's saying, if you really are who you say you are, wouldn't you uphold these traditions better than we do? That's, that's really what the accusation is. And so Jesus kind of twists it on them and says, by holding these traditions, you actually break and cause other people to break the laws that you say you honor. And he throws this accusation at them by bringing up, ironically, the law and the prophets. He uses Isaiah, he uses the very law to accuse them of what they were trying to accuse him of. And so what they begin to accuse him of is really kind of, a, kind of an evolution of thought, if you will, a forward motion of thought. And kind of the first part of that is he begins to accuse them of adding to the law. Right? Scripture even says that nothing should be added to this. And he accuses them of taking these traditions which were originally, well, they, they, they were good. They were supposed to help them do the law. But accuses them of taking them and adding them to the law. But not only adding them to the law, but elevating them to the level of the law. To which he's basically saying, if I really wanted my people to do it this way, I think we can think through American history and we think how we, but we don't have time to do this, how, how we've, we've done that as a church. We've told people, in order to do this, you have to do this. And God never said that. He said, this is what I want my people to do. And that's okay. Aids are not wrong or, or practices or rhythms. They're not wrong. But they become wrong when they become a burden to the people because you've elevated them to the level of what I've actually asked them to do. Um, then he... Uh, So he he accuses them of um, adding to the law, which leads to neglecting the law. And then it leads them to completely missing the point of the law. Remember at the beginning I said, the point of the law was not to obey the law. The law was dynamic. It was was pointing towards something. It was pointing towards something that was going to come. And the law was kind of guiding the people in this way. Now, so there's a couple things here, a couple other things that Jesus is... um, 
that we need to get about Jesus that oftentimes we, we seem to overlook because we are, we are modern people. We've evolved to a better consciousness. We are better than this. But out of all the things Jesus disagrees with the Pharisees on, the one thing he does not disagree with them is that we are unclean and unfit. He doesn't disagree with that. He disagrees with how we make ourselves clean and fit. He disagrees with the purpose of the law that they, they have interpreted. But he doesn't disagree with the idea that we are unclean and unfit and broken people in and of ourselves. Now, what we want to do, and all you have to do is listen to, which is, this is, this is funny to me, but all you have to do is, is look, at the, look at the news today, right? And you can see that there is something very wrong with humanity, right? We have progressed, we have evolved to a higher consciousness, and yet, our slave problem is worse than it has ever been in the world. Our orphan crisis is worse than it has ever been in the world. We have, even though we have evolved in our technology and war, more civilians are killed through war today than when our weapons were archaic. This is part of our progression. And so here's the deal. We know at a gut level, based off of the way we live, that there is something very wrong with humanity and things are not the way they should be. And we can, even, we can take it away from the big stuff, the, the wars and the slavery and stuff like this. Why in the world is the number one selling book list self-help books? Right? Because we know at a gut level there is something very, very wrong with us. What are some other ways? Someone throw it out there. What are some other ways that we live that prove that we actually know there's something wrong with us? Does that make sense, that question? Anybody? Lies? Yeah, we... Okay, that's good. Locks, if you didn't hear what he said. That proves we know, maybe we're not, but some, someone else is really messed up. Right? Anything else? Hyperperformance. Because we think at the end of the day that will fulfill or complete something in us that we don't have in and of ourselves. That was good. How about relationships? Relationships in and of themselves, like the law, are not bad. In fact, we're supposed to be in relationships. But how many times have we turned to relationships to fulfill or to meet the incompleteness that we know we are? Yeah, so this is, this is all Jesus is saying. Yeah, you're right. Humanity is very, very broken and very, very messed up at its core. But this is not the remedy to humanity. Um, The other thing Jesus does is, uh, which I think in a church world, not talking about ANC specifically, but as as Christians, we, we like to deny the authority of the law in favor of freedom in Christ. But that's Old Testament. Jesus never puts the law down. In this text at all. And in fact, if you start looking through the New, the New Testament, the gospel specifically, and you start looking at the way Jesus holds himself in regard to the law, what you find is that Jesus never puts the law down, never hates it, never looks at it as say, it's something old that doesn't need to be looked at. Rather, he elevates it quite a bit. He says things like, I have not come to abolish the law. I've come to fulfill it. He says, not one dot or iota shall pass from this law until it's reached its end. When, think, about, think about when the temptations happen, right? 
you've been to those places in life where you get squeezed, whether that's job situation, financial situation, relationship situation, but life kind of squeezes you. And sometimes the things that come out of you, out of your mouth, out of your attitude are the things you wish really didn't exist in you because they reveal who you really are behind the facade. When Jesus gets pressed, what comes out of him? It is written, the law, the law flows out of him, which tells us that Jesus respected the law. He leaned on the law. He used it as his source of life and he obeyed it. So not only does Jesus agree with the fact that humanity is very, very broken and in need of something, but he agrees with the fact that the law is something that humanity needs. Let's keep going. Verse, where are we? Verse 17. Now, when Jesus had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples asked him about this parable. And he said to them, Are you so foolish? Don't you understand that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him? For it does not enter his heart, but his stomach. So what Jesus right away is telling us the source of humanity's problem. And he's using a little bit of sarcasm. One of the translations when he's speaking to his, to his disciples, he says, are you so dull? Have you not noticed the food you eat ends up in a toilet? It cannot possibly affect your heart. Right? He's saying, are you so dull? Have you not grasped the hold of the meaning of the law? Did you not realize that the very purpose of the law was not to just get you to obey it, but was to get you to recognize your need of an internal cleansing that could not be done on the outside, that had to come from some sort of intervention. The purpose of the law was to point you towards something that would come and do internally what it could not do externally. Are you so dull? Back in 18, he said, are you so foolish? Are you so dull? Don't you understand that whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile him? For it does not enter his heart, but his stomach, and then goes out into the sewer. This means, the better translation is, by saying this, he declares all food to be clean. So, there's a couple things. Number one, we just kind of said this. Jesus is stating that humanity's problem is not that they do bad things, therefore it produces bad people. Humanity's brokenness, or humanity does bad things because at a heart level, it is what is produced. And humanity can never be remedied. Humanity can never be fixed. The brokenness can never be put back together by anything on an external level. But to get what Jesus is saying, to kind of get what, by de- that, especially that line, by declaring this, he's saying all food is clean. We got to have a little bit of an understanding of what the law actually is and how it relates to us today. Because there, there's, there seems to be two very uh, polar uh, or opposing thoughts. And one of those is we abide by it completely. The other one is it's Old Testament, old meaning we don't need it anymore. 
But what some modern theologians have done for us is they have gone to the New Testament and they have looked at how Jesus treats the law. Okay? Then they've looked at the early church to see how the early church dealt with the law. And then they kind of took that matrix and they went back to Leviticus, Deuteronomy, and they, they started looking at how those laws evolved, how they changed, or how some of them dropped off because of the death of Jesus. You with me? And so what they have done is they've kind of broken the law down into three subcategories on how they relate to us today, how they function, and really how they function back then. And the, fir- the first set of laws uh, what is what they might call the cultural or the civil laws. Okay? These laws were put in place to govern Israel as a theocracy. When Israel was a theocracy, just like every nation, they needed a governing document, so to speak, a governing law. And so God gave them the, 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 the civil and the cultural laws to help guide them, to govern them into being God's holy people on this earth. The other thing this law did is it helped distinguish the holy nation that they were supposed to be from the other unholy pagan nations, right? We can call ourselves a holy people all we want, but if there's no difference between us and an unholy person, there's just no difference, right? There's just not. And so what, what, these, what these laws did was, was, was really speak to um, the significance or the principles of the way God views things like mercy, like justice, and like an order, okay? So while we don't follow those laws today because we are not a theocracy under God, the relevance for us when we look at those laws is to begin to grab God's heart for justice, God's heart for mercy, God's heart for order. Still, when we look back at those, we might think, that's still, some of those seem pretty archaic. But the truth is, when you look at those laws compared to the rest of the laws on the earth of that day, like Hammurabi's, Hammurabi's code, what you find out is God was a God of justice, he was a God of great mercy, and he was a God who ordered things for the good of his people. And that's kind of what those laws do. They, they help us remember that, and that was the purpose of them. The next, the next set of laws uh, was the, uh, the moral laws. Okay? And what these laws did is they kind of supported, if you will, they supported the dignity of the image of God in humanity. Okay? And, and, and when followed right, when they, were, when they were followed, what they began to show is, is God's purpose uh, for the human race and how humans would relate to one another. You know, they, they had to do with how we, how we related. But the other thing they did was really because, remember, they pointed towards something else. The goal was not to just get you to stop killing people. But I know I don't think it was tempted with that today. But the goal was not to just make you not a murderer. The goal was to make you something at a heart level. But the laws couldn't do that. So what these laws did, or what, and what they continue to do, is they point us towards our need for a savior because we couldn't fulfill them. We can't do them. Right? And so, so, but here's what's interesting about these laws. Well, unlike the ceremonial laws, or not the ceremonial laws, the civil laws that, that no longer, they're, they're just a shadow or a reminder of God's justice and mercy, the moral laws, the early church nor Jesus never breaks. He never puts them down. In fact, Jesus elevates them, He makes them a little harder. Why? Because the, the Pharisees, Israel began to make them as a thing unto themselves. 
right? But God, when you, remember when Jesus says, you say, so what, you haven't had an affair with your wife, but if you, or on your wife, but you've lusted, you've, you've broken the law. So what, you've not murdered somebody today, but you've gotten angry, you've, you've broken the law. What Jesus is saying when he elevates the law is, my goal is not to just have a bunch of people who don't kill people. My goal, my hope, my heart for humanity is to have a people who don't hate anybody. My goal for humanity is to not have a people who settle for things like tolerance, but they are full of love because hate is nowhere to be found. He says, my goal is not just to get you not to steal from your neighbor. That doesn't mean you've accomplished the law because you didn't steal from them. My heart was that this law would point you to the reality that I want a people who don't envy and lust after the things of this world. So you have the civil law, you have the moral law, and then you have kind of what we're dealing with here is is the ceremonial laws. Okay? And what these laws were, were, were set in place to do was to teach people how to relate to a holy God or how to worship a holy God. And so what these laws really reminded them of, what the, the aid was this, was that at the very center of the Jewish life was temple worship. And you could claim you were a Jew all you wanted, but if you did not get to worship God in community in the temple, you were not. That was everything to them. That identified them. That made them who they were. This was their pride, okay? And so the idea was inside this temple resides this very pure, this very clean, this very holy God. And outside this temple is a very impure, very broken people. And in order to get into the presence of God, you need some sort of outside purification to allow you into his presence. And that's what these were in place for. But what they reminded the people of is that someday, I'll say it again, someday something is coming that will do on the inside what these laws only drew a picture of on the outside. Are you with me? And so when Jesus says, where's that again? When Jesus says, when Mark says that by saying this, he declares all food to be clean, Jesus is saying that the need that the function, that the purpose of this law has come to an end. And it has come to an end in me. Because what it attempted to do on the outside that it never could, I have come to do on the inside. I have come to make you clean, to make you fit, to make you whole before a holy, worthy God. And it's almost like Mark is saying, even though humanity is very, very, very broken, and even though humanity goes to great extents to externally remedy that, to fix that, whether it's relationships, whether it's a job, whether it's title, whether it's whatever, at the end of the day, we can't get away from the fact that we are unfit for who God is. And what I think Mark is echoing to us today is that no matter how unfit you feel, no matter how unclean you feel, no matter how unworthy you feel, no matter how worn out you feel from trying to make yourself right for God, you get to stop. 
Because the one who makes you clean, the one who makes you whole, the one who makes you fit has already come and done it for you. And you can quit bowing to the idol, to the laws of work, right? Works of attempting of this relationship, of that relationship, of this promotion, of that promotion, of whatever it is we have found our value in. I think what God is telling us through Mark's voice 2,000 years later is that Jesus, Jesus is the calm to our chaos. Not anything else we can do. Jesus is the relationship to our loneliness. Not any other relationship we can find. Jesus is the healing to our sickness. Not anything else we can do. Or according to this text, Jesus is the purity to our stained lives. And nothing we can do can fix it except putting all of our love towards him. The purpose of the law was to point us towards Christ. I think the very reason God does not allow us to be satisfied with the things that we try to satisfy ourselves with is so at the end of the day, we can back out and say, it's all about him. And until we learn to direct our lives and lean deeply into the person and work of Jesus, we will never find the sort of satisfaction, the sort of longing, the sort of hope, the sort of wholeness that we wanted. Let's turn to Romans 8 real quick. Uh, we talked about at the beginning when we started going through this, through this series that Mark was a person who was, um, who was really discipled by three distinct people. He was discipled by Barnabas, so he kind of got this, this Greek outtake, this very educated uh, perspective. He was, he was discipled by Peter, so he kind of got this, this roughneck deal. But he was, also, he was also discipled by Paul. Okay, and we, we all, if you know the Bible at all, we all know who Paul is, right? He wrote the majority of the New Testament that we have today. And I think what Mark is doing through this story and the way he tells it is echoing the words of a mentor of his. And we turn to chapter 8, verse 1, he says this, Paul says this. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the life-giving spirit in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For God achieved what the law could not do because it was weakened through the flesh. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and concerning sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. So that the righteous requirement of the law may be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. And so in closing, I guess here's what I, I kind of was this whole week struggling with. Well, what's the, what's the walk away to do? What can I challenge you to do? I don't think this text gives us a to do. I think this text just simply reminds us that every single God-given longing that we have tried to fulfill on our own, but only ends up having us long for more, is answered in Jesus. That Jesus is the very answer 
to every hopeless, every lonely, every unfit, every unclean, every bad past that you've had. And what Mark asks us to do is not do better, but it's to turn more deeply into Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we, uh, we thank you for your word. We thank you as we're getting ready to remember here in communion that, um, that you came to live the life that we could not live. And then you died the death that we deserve because of how unclean and how fit and how, un- and how sinful we were. And then you raised life to invite us into the wholeness that you are. You gave us your righteousness because in ourselves we were not righteous. You gave us your purity because in and of ourselves we were not pure. You gave us you as our hope when we are hopeless. And so, Father, today as we reflect on the cross, would you help us to remember that it's all about your son? It's always about your son. And then when life seems to be chaotic and overwhelming, that that the the thing is not to fix it, but the thing is to turn back and reflect and remember what your son has done. Father, we love you and we glorify you. In your name we pray. Amen.